Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. My name is Avery Wyman, and I am the host of this episode of the New Books Network series in Jewish Studies. Today, I'll be speaking with Professor Christopher Silver about his new book, Recording History, Jews, Muslims, and Music Across 20th Century North Africa. He is the Siegel Family Assistant Professor in Jewish History and Culture in the Department of Jewish Studies at McGill University, and he is a friend and a fellow member of the vast and impressive network of UCLA-trained historians, who work on Jewish history in the modern Middle East and North Africa. Recording history is an exciting needle drop in the historiography of Jewish history in North Africa, as well as in the 20th century of North Africa more generally. Taking heavy wax 78s, or shellac records, as his starting point, Silver plays back the previously muted history of Jewish musicians, producers, and merchants who constituted a significant proportion of the North African music industry in the 20th century. In the process, Silver amplifies a number of important historical points that have been all too often relegated to the B-side. For instance, while the conventional historiography on Jews in North Africa has often focused on North African Jewish Francophilia and socio-legal divisions between Jews and Muslims, the history of music demonstrates that Jews and Muslims continued to maintain relationships with each other's despite spasms of tension in the interwar period in 1948 or after the independence of North African states. Or, in another example, while other historians have explained North African nationalisms based on the activities of political parties and intellectual elites, Silver analyzes the creation of Moroccan, Algerian, and Tunisian nations through songs, fashion, and marketing. What emerges from this is a kind of moderate, inclusive, and broadly patriotic nationalism that, despite its mass popularity, has too often played second fiddle, or more perhaps accurately, second oud string to more radical politics. This same turn to the soundscape reveals that women, who were often iconic divas in their own time, played indispensable roles in the creation of national cultures. These are just a few cases from Silver's bigger assertion, that doing history, the history of culture especially, requires more than reading the text of newspapers, pamphlets, speeches, or magazines. It requires listening for the popular experience of the past. So with that short introduction, thank you so much for joining us today, Professor Silver. Thanks for having me, Avery. It's a pleasure to be here with you. So let's just jump right into the first question. And I'll start with the same first question that I ask all of my guests, which is, how did you get interested in this subject? Uh, yes, uh, thanks. So, um, I wonder if it's the same response as everyone else, but we'll see. Um, you know, I, I had an interest in North Africa, specifically, uh, Morocco, uh, that, uh, was, um, uh, 
uh, harnessed as, a, as an undergraduate at, at UC Berkeley. Um, in parallel, I was also interested in music and not just sort of, um, not just those sort of singing into the microphone, but the entire apparatus of, of music, sort of um, how, uh, how music was uh, made, how songs came together, how um, uh, records, for example, became uh, popular. And it's with those sort of uh, two things in mind that I, I found myself uh, in Casablanca in 2009, um, I, uh, was walking down the street and lo and behold, there was a, an actual real life record store, uh, there, uh, not selling CDs, uh, not selling, uh, MP3s, but, uh, vinyl records, uh, LPs and 45 RPM, uh, records as well. And I walked in and I was just transported to, uh, a, diff- a different time and place. And I really knew very little of uh of north african music at that time or moroccan music and so i just asked the proprietor you know i said i'm gonna buy some things but can you give me sort of a uh, a musical tour of uh of what's in in the store and so i spent a good amount of time there and the proprietor kept on uh laying down uh, records on a turntable connected to these great uh old uh, vintage speakers and all of a sudden um, I found myself just sort of captivated and transfixed by uh, the music I heard, the diversity of, uh, of the sounds and, and, and voices. And, you know, without fail, the proprietor kept on mentioning sort of every other record that, oh, by the way, this, uh, this musician in question uh, is or, or was uh, Jewish. Uh, that was something that the proprietor almost... Um, it sort of felt like history was uh, was heading my way in the form of a, of a whisper. And so I was intrigued by this, uh, purchased uh, a, a number of, uh, of records, and then attempted to start to piece together uh, this story. So, you know, I, I soon learned that the record itself, in addition to the, the, the music on it, uh, but sort of the physicality, the materiality of the record, um, there were a lot of dots uh, that could be connected, uh, right? So, like uh, the, the 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 scope and, and span of, of a record label, um, the uh, recording artist uh, uh, on the record, but also uh, the composer and the lyricist. Um, you know, as I happened upon sort of duplicates of records, I started to get a sense of, oh, perhaps uh, we can start to think of and speak of popularity. And so, you know, we can talk about that process uh further on in in the podcast but it was really in 2009 in a record store in casablanca that uh, i got my start with this project right and before we get deeper into the book can you tell us a little bit more about what the scope of the book itself is so what are the countries that we're talking about and generally what is happening in the 20th century that serves as kind of the historical landmarks the historical cornerstones that we follow through in our story yeah, there. Well, there's a lot happening. Um, so the the book, um, the book treats uh, its its focus is Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, uh, and dips a little bit into Libya at at points uh, as well. Um, the the temporal span is the end of the 19th century uh, through, I would say, really the 1960s. 
Um, and what that uh, span allows for is for uh, me, uh, as well as the reader, uh, to follow the arc of a technology. Um, so this is sort of um, uh, the emergence of um, uh, records at the end of the 19th century, uh, first uh, the wax uh, cylinder, but then eventually um, uh, the the disc, uh, sort of the record as, as we might picture it, uh, spinning at 78 rotations per minute and holding about uh, three minutes of music per side. And, and this technology really emerges at the beginning or the turn of the, from the 19th to the 20th century, uh, and then remains in force and, and quite um, uh, strong uh, through the 1950s and in some cases into the 1960s uh, as well. So 1948 in the book serves as a, you know a signifier of a number of events, but also 1948 uh, is uh, the year of the birth of the vinyl record uh, as well, uh, the LP, um, which, which uh, changes the uh, equation and dynamic as well. So um, that's sort of some of the geography, uh, some of the temporal scope. Uh, of course, other places come into the to the story as well. Uh, metropolitan uh, France, of course. Um, uh, uh, Israel uh, as well. Um, and so, you know, in terms of what's happening and what's going on, of course, uh, th- there's much. And I'm trying to think how, how best to think about this. I mean, you know, uh, from a sort of general uh, North African history perspective, um, the 19th century, of course, is the moment uh, that uh, uh, France uh, comes to violently uh, occupy Algeria. That's in, in 1830, uh, before, of course, eventually subsuming uh, Algeria into uh, mainland France by uh, mid-19th century. Uh, France will also uh, uh, make uh, Tunisia a protectorate in uh, 1881, uh, and then will uh, do the same with Morocco in 1912. And in 1912, Morocco, in fact, becomes two Moroccos, uh, one uh, a French protectorate and the other a Spanish protectorate. Uh, in the north, and we can also talk about a similar process vis-a-vis, vis-a-vis uh, Italian occupation of, uh, of, of Libya uh, at, the, at the time. Um, as I mentioned, uh, French and Italian colonialism are um, incredibly violent, um, uh, come with, um, uh, come with uh, a large uh, dispossessing uh, settler class uh, uh, as well. Um, and, you know, again, this is sort of like a lot of history in, in sort of, uh, in, in a few very brief and and broad strokes. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually what will emerge as, as, uh, the, the 20th century, uh, wears on is, um, the emergence of, uh, various types of, uh, reform movements, those seeking to sort of, uh, Moroccans, Algerians, Tunisians seeking to, to renegotiate, um, uh, the, the, sort of the, the arrangement or uh, the, the occupation or the protectorate regimes. Um, and once uh, it becomes clear that uh, um, uh, 
the Third Republic has, has, has no interest or has very little interest in, in doing this, we'll, we'll come to uh, a, a series of uh, uh, nationalist uh, events uh, movements, uh, nationalist uh, uh, movements, come anti-colonialist uh, movements uh, as well, which will eventually uh, uh, culminate in the independence of uh, Morocco and Tunisia in 1956. And then uh, after uh, a very bloody uh, seven and a half year uh, war, uh, the independence of Algeria in 1962 after 132 years of, of occupation. Um, and so, uh, you know, modern uh, North African uh, history or 20th century North African history um, is, this, is, is this really sort of... Um, uh, remarkable uh, moment of, of change uh, for Moroccans, Al- Algerians, and Tunisians. So that's on on the one hand that I'm leaving out things like there are two world wars uh, during uh, during that period, uh, which come to have uh, an impact uh, uh, on the relationship between uh, French colonial authorities and, and Moroccan Alger- Moroccans, Algerians, and, and Tunisians, uh, and also will bring. Um, uh, other elements into play. For example, the advent of uh, uh, Vichy rule uh, with uh, the fall of uh, France's Third Republic in, in, in 1940. Uh, and, uh, and we can get to that a bit later about how it changes uh, the Jewish-Muslim uh, dynamic uh, in, in North Africa. Yeah, that gives us a really good general historical sweep of kind of the world in which this history takes place, this history of music that you've written. And so with this kind of framework in place, I think we can dive right into the book. So one of the first foundational points that you make in the book is that Jews played an integral role in the establishment of the music industry in North Africa, so in its very creation. And more specifically, you point out that Jews played integral roles in what I think are kind of three main ways. Um, The first is in elevating a tradition of Andalusian music through published books and through compositions, through sheet music. Uh, The second is as the producers of music itself, so as artists and then also as the heads of record labels and the technicians behind the scenes. And then the third as the merchants um, who turned music into a business, right, into a booming transnational market. So can you touch on these three key roles that North African Jews played um, in the North African music industry? music industry at its beginning, so as scholars, as creatives, and also as merchants? Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, that also brings us sort of to the, uh, we we spoke about, you know, general uh, North African history, but this will also get us into the, the, the parameters of, of North African Jewish history as well, because, you know, some of what is um, surprising here is, is, is something that you mentioned at the outset in terms of, you know, much, but not all of the scholarship has has sort of focused on on what you refer to as uh, francophilia. Um, has certainly come to a focus on uh, francophone uh, French language uh, sources or institutions or uh, the role played by the uh, Franco Jewish uh, educational institution, the Alliance Israelite Universelle. Um, and suddenly, you know, when we when we shift. Uh, our, our focus or uh, we shift from sort of like the, the visual to, to the oral and we move away strictly from uh, French sources and toward um, Arabic uh, language sources, you know, this, this world of, of music um, 
comes into uh, comes into earshot, uh, and what emerges is um, just how pivotal a role uh, this uh, this minority uh, of uh, Jews in Morocco, Algeria, uh, Tunisia came in in fashioning uh, the culture of the of the Muslim uh, majority. So, you know, um, this happened in um, a number of, uh, of ways, but really sort of uh, we, can, we can follow along with the recording industry to think through how this, uh, this process happened. Uh, we can take a figure like um, the uh, Algerian Jewish impresario Edmund Nathan Yafil, uh, born in 1874 uh, in uh, the lower Kasbah of Algiers uh, to uh, um, uh, humble, modest uh, uh, working class uh, family and, uh, and milieu. Uh, he grew up uh, an Arabic speaker. Uh, he grew up uh, immersed in a world of uh, Andalusian music. So this would be the uh, multimodal, sweet uh, music that very much looks back to uh, Al-Andalus, uh, although, of course, was also fashioned uh, in North Africa in the intervening uh, centuries. Um, and uh, he was also, um, by dint of something known as the Camus Decree uh, uh, of 1870, he was also uh, a French citizen. Um, and so as was the, the vast majority of Algerian Jews, uh, uh, 1870, uh, moving forward. And so, um, despite his, uh, citizenship, he, he, re- he remained, uh, very much, uh, moored, uh, in his, uh, uh, in his, uh, milieu, uh, again, with an ear, uh, to the ground, uh, uh, for, uh, uh, Arab music, Arabic language music, Andalusian music. And so what he starts to do when he's just one of a, a few figures uh, like this, what he starts to do already at the 19th century is understand that sort of the, the devastation that's been wrought by the French colonial uh, authorities is uh, endangering uh, the state of, of music in uh, in Algeria. An old guard is uh, is passing. Uh, the master disciple relationship, which guided music, is is shifting. And so, using you know the the technologies of the day, the, the technological tools at his uh, disposal, he attempts valiantly and and uh, and. Um, with much success to begin to gather what he can. So um, he begins to gather uh, uh, Andalusian song texts in, in manuscript form from both uh, Jewish and, and Muslim uh, practitioners uh, and uh, produces uh, one of the most important uh, uh, collections of these song texts uh, in, uh, in 1904, uh, known as the Majmu'a. Uh, and this is what it sounds like. It's a, it's a collection of uh, 400 Andalusian uh, song texts. Um, here we, we would say that the, the text is included, uh, but it, it's organized by um, um, uh, mode and, uh, and melody. Uh, and it's printed in, in two scripts. It's printed in uh, Arabic and, and Arabic script, 
but also Arabic and Hebrew script as well for um, Jewish practitioners uh, of the of the Andalusian uh, tradition. Um, he also, as you mentioned, uh, gets into the the sheet music for piano game. Um, so you know, again, attempting uh, to uh, preserve, propagate, perpetuate uh, this music again with the tools at his disposal. But you know, the sort of written projects are soon uh, put um, aside uh, by him uh, when he realizes, recognizes that um, there's a way to sort of continue uh, that master-disciple relationship uh, uh, of years uh, past uh, by uh, recording uh, musicians and the musicians uh, in his midst, uh, first on, uh, on cylinders, and these cylinders uh, held um, about two minutes of music and uh, spun at 160 rotations per minute. So he would gather the musicians of uh, the lower Kasbah, a great uh, many of which were uh, Jewish and a great many of which lived uh, just, you know, uh, sometimes shared a home with him or lived just a few uh, a few uh, houses down. But I mean, we're really talking about sort of a compact uh, working class uh, uh, Jewish milieu that gave birth to this uh, early um, uh, recording industry. Uh, and he would gather them in his office uh, in front of a phonograph horn. Uh, they would uh, sing or uh, play uh, instruments into the horn, uh, which would then trigger a cutting stylus uh, and which would then etch uh, that music into first uh, cylinders and then eventually uh, discs, uh, uh, phonograph records. Um, that's a, a snapshot of one of these uh, figures, and, and perhaps we'll just sort of we can we can use him to sort of play out the the tripartite division that you mentioned. But um, so he he uh, engages uh, uh, the the you know the edited volume, the collected uh, works project, uh, sheet music. Uh, recording technology. He also expands um, the Andalusian uh, orchestra as we as we knew it from its 19th century uh, guys, which was uh, five six uh, uh, musicians uh, who would uh, envelop or surround uh, a master musician, the sheikh or the madam. Uh, he would expand that orchestra, uh, creating the first modern uh, Andalusian uh, orchestra in uh, in Algeria and North Africa. Uh, Known as El Mutrebia. And, you know, from there, uh, things certainly by the, the 1910s uh, and then in, in the post World War I period uh, expand uh, dramatically. So El Mutrebia, for example, uh, moves away strictly from the sort of, you know, staid high art classical uh, Andalusian tradition and begins bringing in. Uh, Tin Pan Ali songs translated into Arabic, songs that are mixed in, in Arabic uh, and in and in French, um, and all manner of popular song and and the technology of recording of three minutes of music per side, sort of the, the necessity of having to truncate, um, you know, what would otherwise be much longer musical sessions sort of facilitates this move into, into the popular, uh, you feel, um, endeavor to record 
really, really widely, a really uh, diverse uh, array of music uh, in multiple languages, uh, Arabic, uh, Hebrew, Kabil, uh, other languages, um, styles, uh, uh, religious, uh, secular, if we want to call it that, both religious vis-a-vis uh, uh, the um, uh, I'm thinking here of, of Piyut, Piyut team, of, of uh, the Hebrew paraliturgical uh, tradition, as well as uh, Medih, uh, praise poetry uh, for the Prophet uh, Muhammad, speaking to uh, Islamic tradition. Um, and all of that he, he classes as Algerian music. He's not um, distinguishing uh, between between one or the other in, in his understanding of sort of um, uh, sort of the commercialization of music for him all of that is uh, all of that is uh, Algerian um, and so I, I'll say just a couple more words because this is a, a long response but um, in addition to sort of being uh, the musicians themselves, and as well, we got a sense that, you know, uh, Yafil is acting as artistic director, uh, representative of, uh, of uh, major international uh, uh, record labels as well. Uh, we also get the rise of, of the record store uh, during uh, this period. So, I mean, already in the, in the aughts, um, uh, in the, you know, between 1900 and 19. 1910, uh, and then in the 1910s and 1920s, this uh, explodes, and uh, we have dozens of locations for a single um, uh, outfit. So, uh, one such outfit is um, is known in Tunisia as uh, Bembaron, uh, and then in uh, Tunisia and Algeria as Bembaron, and then in uh, Morocco as Bembaron et Hazan, uh, owing to um, uh, a nephew that ends up uh, running uh, the store there in Morocco. And these um, uh, proprietors, these uh, sort of uh, those who are helping grow uh, the recording industry, are dealing in you know significant uh, uh, numbers of, of records. This is not sort of um, you know in some ways this is it's not ephemeral. It's not fleeting. I mean they're they're dealing uh, with uh, thousands of individual titles. Uh, hundreds of thousands of records are are in circulation uh, by the interwar period. And so, you know, what, what started as uh, Yafil gathering uh, manuscripts, moving on to sheet music and then working with cylinders grows really into a, a, a powerful industry uh, by even the 1920s, but certainly by the 1930s. Yeah, Yafil is one figure who embodies these three aspects that we're talking about. So he is a scholar, he's a creative, and he's an entrepreneur. I want to zero in a little bit more on the last of these three on the entrepreneurial aspect, because it raises for me one of the major kind of methodological um, aspects of your book, which is this is necessarily a transnational regional history and not a history that is defined by national boundaries. So the rise of record stores, but more specifically retail chains um, really explains this better. Um, Can you give us just a little bit more on how maybe one branch of a record store might pop up in Morocco, but then the same family will have a record store in Algeria and how looking at this kind of history of retail, this history of commerce explains what you want to say um, with your point about trans-regional, um, transnational regional histories. Yeah, I, thank you for that question as well. I mean, here I'm really... 
here I'm really um, sort of taking up the mantle of uh, Julia Clancy Smith, um, who wrote in uh, Mediterraneans and, and other works sort of um, uh, asked of historians to um, perhaps provincialize sort of the north-south access, right? Sort of the metropole uh, colony access. And we see this in, in much of our work uh, to look east-west or, or west-east. So, you know, what what ends up happening when when again when the focus is on music is it becomes very difficult to sort of narrate along uh, the lines of the nation state or, or nor, n- national uh, borders or, or boundaries. So, for example, and I'll get to record stores in just a second. But if you even think about uh, the overlapping uh, traditions of the Andalusian repertoire. Um, they don't correspond to just Morocco or just Algeria or Tunisia. So, you know, depending on uh, on what we're, we're talking about, if we're thinking about sort of uh, Malouf, Malouf, one of the iterations of the Andalusian repertoire, um, you know, this... Uh, brings together Eastern Algeria, uh, Tunisia, Libya to a certain extent uh, uh, as well. Uh, we can think about uh, Garnati, uh, uh, that the iteration of uh, the Andalusian repertoire in Western Algeria, uh, Eastern Morocco. So already when just speaking about uh, sort of high art uh, music, it certainly doesn't conform uh, to national boundaries. The musicians themselves uh, moved constantly uh and so even trying to sort of you know um uh, uh hold them to a, a singular uh, national identity becomes uh, a quite difficult task and, and doesn't quite make sense right so like let's say an artist uh who's born in uh in libya uh, but makes their career uh, in, in Tunis or, or some uh, iteration thereof. Uh, and then the songs uh, themselves uh, are moving across uh, the Maghreb or, or North Africa, um, uh, east uh, to west, right? And, and usually uh, not getting much uh, past uh, Libya, so not usually sort of jumping uh, over to Egypt, whereas, of course, uh, uh, the music of, of Egypt and uh, Syria and Lebanon and and beyond uh, certainly makes its way to uh, North Africa as well. So, you know, all of this to say that there's there is a sort of a, a canon that emerges in North Africa uh, at this time that's uh, known across Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia, but not uh, beyond it. Um, and so there's something quite intriguing uh, uh, about that. Uh, and then we can also see this with the growth of uh, the record stores, as, as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier. Um, so, you know, um, uh, record labels will serve uh, uh, the region. Uh, Bembaron, which is one of the um, uh, record stores that I take a, a, a close uh, look at is operating all across uh, Tunisia, uh, but also operating in uh, Algeria as well, and then has uh, branches in Morocco uh, at the same time. And of course, this is this is uh, this is there, there's cooperation uh, between the various branches that are built into this as well. So, you know, if we we think about concert tours, if we think about the music uh, or sort of popular music moving across these particular uh, borders and, and boundaries, if we think about the Andalusian tradition, which, which straddles uh, these uh, nation state uh, borders, um, then all of a sudden it, it becomes quite uh, necessary to move to uh, a regional uh, model. It would sort of be 
it wouldn't be fair to our historical actors, in, in my opinion, to, sort of to, to limit this study to, to just Morocco or just Algeria or, or just Tunisia. And even when some of the connections are uh, more difficult to tease out, we'll find uh, that, you know, the inspiration or one of those who inspired, uh, let's say, uh, Samuel Mogrebi, a, a figure I, I treat in chapter uh, chapters five and six, you know, one of his great inspirations is Lilil Abbasi, uh, an Algerian Jew who, in fact, is himself born in Marseille in France at the end of the 19th century and who is himself of uh, Moroccan uh, origin. So uh, all of this is sort of um, uh, a history that's deeply enmeshed uh, across across borders. And so that's why I wanted to, to narrate it uh, in such a fashion. Great. And then moving forward a little bit in time from where we've been so far in the interview, um, in chapters two and three, you take us into the interwar period. So as we're talking about a regional scope and not subscribing necessarily to the boundaries of nation state, the interwar period is when you see the creation of national ideas, period, um, in the Middle East and North Africa. And so the interwar period is this fascinating, robust, and often very contradictory decade um, between the First World War and the Second World War. And one of your major points about this period um, is that it's the time in which a, quote, modern public developed in North Africa. So my question is, what do you mean by this? Uh, what is the modern public? And more specifically, what are some of the ideas and concepts bound up in the debate over what modernity was or is? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, we we uh, we get a, a concert going public, what, what I would call a modern public um, that uh, emerges uh, in the twenties and and thirties. Um, these publics are again seeking out music paying uh for music spending their their leisure time uh in in pursuit of of music um the the audiences themselves um are at once quite uh diverse um men and women uh diverse uh, socioeconomically and of course uh muslims and jews as well and together they they come to understand themselves as a, a singular public and, the, and they come to understand themselves in, uh, in national uh, terms. So they come to understand themselves as sort of uh, a, a Tunisian audience uh, in the case of, of Tunis or an Algerian audience, a Moroccan audience, uh, etc. And the music that they're um, after, the music that draws out, you know, thousands of people to uh, municipal theaters, uh, movie theaters that also uh, double as uh, as concert uh, venues. Um, and then, you know, we can also talk about uh, cafes where records are played and, and, uh, and, and, and other venues. Um the music is is also popular and, and modern and uh, advancing sort of new ideas about uh, how these uh, societies uh, should should work. So new ideas about um, uh, relations between uh, uh, men and, and women, what it means to be a modern Tunisian or Algerian or Moroccan uh, man or woman, um, questions of... Um, 
the equality of uh, of the sexes, uh, new types of, of of clothing, new sort of sartorial uh, choices, new ways to sort of be in and, and of the world with this uh, national um, component uh, embedded uh, into it. And what I also find intriguing uh, about this is that. Um, Jewish artists are, are at the forefront of uh, the creation of these of these modern publics of uh, the popular music that's uh, that's uh, bringing them together. And again, whereas in the past we've come to focus on um, uh, French language sources, and it sort of has has um, uh, it's significantly muted uh, this aspect of history. If we turn to the most popular records of the time, uh, many of which were released by uh, both Jewish vocalists and and Jewish composers, uh, female uh, Jewish artists and and, uh, male Jewish composers uh, uh, behind them, uh, they're singing, of course, in Arabic about uh, new ideas of of what it means to be in the world, what it means to be uh, modern. They're doing so in an Arabic that's that's understood by all. So this is not sort of, um, this is not the Arabic of, the Andalusian tradition, uh, sort of, a, you know, a really elevated form of Arabic. This is the type of Arabic uh, that uh, people speak on uh, on the street. And it's the type of Arabic that sort of lends itself to, to uh, easy memorization, right? Sort of uh, uh, lyrics uh, that people can sing and, and hum to themselves uh, after seeing uh, someone in concert or after just hearing their record um, at, a, uh, at a cafe uh, or something like that. So that's what I'm, I'm talking about, sort of new understandings of uh, who people are and, and what it means to be them uh, during this period. Before I ask a follow-up question on this, I want to make an observation of my own, something that I found really, really fascinating about your discussion of the modern public. Um, it seems that you've discovered that legal, communal, and religious differences between North African Jews and North African Muslims and everybody else who's considered to be in the modern public didn't determine kind of the boundaries of who the public is. Instead, more than anything else, it seems to be that these people are united by a similar economic class background. So kind of a nouveau riche, new bourgeoisie, effendi class is the kind of people who are in this group of people who are going out into public spaces, cafes, concert halls, movie theaters, and negotiating, trying to figure out what it means to be a modern. Um, That's something that I thought came across really clearly uh, in your discussion is just how essential class is in this and how it supersedes um, in a lot of ways. The things that we might assume uh, without base um, are the reasons that people are divided, things like religion and etc. But the question that I want to ask is that this discussion that you have in the book on the interwar period also raises really interesting topics, really interesting ideas about women um, and what women are doing as artists themselves and also as cultural icons and how they were integral to the music scene in North Africa. So my question is, can you tell us more about an artist like Habiba Mesika, who is a superstar that you highlight at length in the book and about the importance of women's music and women artists to the history that you tell more broadly? Sure. Yeah. And I, I just want to add that, you know, it's not only like uh, an offendy middle class or sort of rising middle class uh, that's coming out to these concerts. It's also um, it's also the masses. Right. It's also uh, solidly working class people who are now brought together with um, uh, those those of, of, of middle class and higher who, who they might not 
otherwise interact with or sort of not interact with on this sort of the, the equalizing playing field that is the, the, the concert hall uh, or some of these spaces where everyone is suddenly uh, together. Everyone has access uh, to, uh, to the same music and it's new music. So this is quite different from the Andalusian scene, which is uh, more often than not reserved for uh, elite men. Um, so it takes place, you know, that scene takes place in, in private homes and the like. So there's, a, there's something that's happening here that's bringing together uh, people that maybe otherwise wouldn't come together, uh, but are coming together to pursue the music of uh, someone like Habiba Masika. Um, Habiba Masika is uh, 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 a Tunisian Jew, uh, born in uh, 1903. Um, she comes uh, from uh, a musical uh, family. Her, her father uh, recorded at the very beginning of uh, the 20th century. Uh, she has uh, uh, an uncle who's a recording artist uh, as well as as well as an aunt who's a, a recording artist of, of uh, considerable fame uh, too. Um, she um, bursts onto the scene in uh, uh, the mid 1910s. So she uh, she burst onto the scene in the 1910s. She's uh, not just uh, an important uh, vocalist, but uh, she's a, a stage actor uh, as well. Um, she acts alongside uh, Mohamed Bourguiba, who is the brother of Habib Bourguiba, uh, who will become uh, the head of the Neo Destour um, uh, nationalist uh, party and movement, and eventually uh, the first uh, president of, uh, of independent Tunisia in, in 1957. Um, she's uh, someone who's, who's daring, who uh, enthralls her uh, audiences, again, whether she's uh, singing or uh, acting. Uh, her voice, uh, you know, sort of a la Um Kalsum and, and others, uh, is known to send uh, her listeners into a state of tarab or, or, or musical ecstasy. Um, uh, and her acting is, is daring in as much as uh, she is wont to take on um, uh, male uh, roles and, and leads. Uh, so uh, Romeo in an Arabic language production of uh, Romeo and Juliet um, uh, and, and others as well. All of this, which, which earns her comparison to the sort of, the, you know, the, the, the pinnacle of, of acting at the time, uh, the French uh, actress uh, Sarah Bernhardt. So Habib Masika is known as uh, a second uh, Sarah Bernhardt. She's singing about sort of the 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 like the topical uh, modern themes that I, I mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago, uh, but like many of these uh, artists who are singing uh, sort of of the modern, uh, Masika also veers uh, headlong into the political, um, takes up uh, Tunisian nationalism uh, in song as well as Pan Arabism uh, as well, and so you know this goes back to the earlier point about sort of like what are these modern publics what makes them modern how do they understand themselves you know Habiba Masika becomes an emblem uh, of, of what it means to be Tunisian um, at this moment in time in the 1920s and what it means to be a Tunisian woman uh, as well so she's very much dressed the part of uh, the flapper uh, she has a, a bob haircut she has the beast on uh, lips uh, certain types of jewelry low 
cut uh, dresses. Um, and so she, she's, she's articulating the sense of the modern through, uh, through fashion through uh, song choice uh, and also through uh, this nationalist material uh, which will incur the wrath of the French authorities who begin uh, search and seizure operations to uh, hunt down every last iteration of these records that she releases. (coughs) Excuse me. These records she releases uh, with the Bidaphone label, uh, a Berlin-born, uh, sorry, a Beirut-born but um, a Berlin-based uh, uh, label that sort of uh, serves as a, a really important um, uh, uh, recording outfit in North Africa in the Middle East uh, during this period. So. Um, She's she is all of that. And, you know, as I I don't know if this is a spoiler alert or not, um, but she meets a a tragic end in in 1930 uh, at the age of uh, at the age of 27. Um, She uh, she's the the subject of uh, of male violence. There is an arson attack on her home in the middle of the night. uh, And uh, she uh, is is burned alive by uh, an elder, an elderly uh, Tunisian uh, Jewish man who seems uh, was infatuated uh, with her. Uh, and so thus sort of a, a remarkable uh, individual uh, woman uh, Tunisian uh, is, uh, is cut short in her, in her prime uh, and what follows uh, incredibly and in, in a testament to her, her import is uh, just an unbelievable amount of, of music on, on the subject of her life. And, and this music, uh, again, is, uh, we can think about sort of, you know, the limits of the word ephemeral or not, but it's, it's not ephemeral. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's recorded. Um, so uh, multiple uh, iterations of songs about Habiba Masika and her life and death are released in the 1930s. In essence, you couldn't... Uh, oh, in addition to being able to hear Habiba Masika uh, everywhere in the 1920s, and then uh, as her records continued to re- remain popular after her death, the records about her as well meant that thousands of uh, copies of these records by or about Habiba Masika uh, were uh, were flowing and, and uh, contributed uh, to uh, the, the memory of her, uh, even in her uh, uh, physical and, and uh, oral absence. Um, so she's a figure that for all of these reasons is really uh, deserving of, of, uh, of attention. Yeah. You highlight a lot of very interesting individual characters in the book, but I have to say personally, she is the one that I found to be the most fascinating um, of all of them. Uh, One, because I had never heard of her before, but two, just because of the trajectory of her life, Um, the fashion, the cross-dressing, the playing Romeo on stage and just everything about her, I found to be very fascinating. Uh, But there's, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say you're not alone. I mean, th- this is the thing about uh, these these figures is that they're, they're recognized in their time, right? It's not the historian coming along many decades later and, and saying, you know, uh, sort of everyone forgot or, or whatever it is. I mean, it was there all along. So uh, Habib, Habib Bourguiba in his memoirs talks about uh, Habiba Masika. Of course, she's all over the press. 
the Algerian uh, uh, sort of father of modern Algerian theater, uh, the disciple of Edmond Nathan Yafil, someone who was known as the Caruso of the desert, uh, Mahidin Bashtarzi, is also enthralled by Habiba Masika. He dates sort of the ascension of Algerian theater to the moment when the Tunisian Habiba Masika crossed over into Algeria and joined him on stage. So again, to come back to this point about um, uh, transnationalism or, or regionality. Uh, and again, the recorded material, uh, including some of the most iconic uh, material, is um, written and composed by uh, a Palestine-born uh, Jew by the name Asher Mizrahi, uh, who is himself uh, a popular artist and a chazan, a, a cantor, um, who uh, was um, enamored of Habiba Masika as well. He ends up penning uh, the most um, sort of uh, iconic, important uh, song about her that in in uh, the early 1930s that's then recorded by a number of, of female artists. So, you know, all of these connections that you just drew out are being drawn out uh, in uh, in its time. Uh, and it's connecting, again, Jews and Muslims, uh, sacred and uh, secular around uh, uh, this figure who in many ways is singular, uh, but who also certainly has her heiresses as well. Yeah, and to build off of that idea, Masika might have been iconic and singular, but she wasn't necessarily an anomaly. So there were other female artists like Delilah Taliana, Luisa Tunisia, Martuncia, and Ratiba Chamia, who you touch on in the book, who sang about similar ideas, similar ideas of modernity, gender, sexuality, class, and politics in popular music that they made. And I got to say, one of the benefits of doing a podcast that the inter- that the audience is listening to is that we can actually play um, some selections of the music that you feature in the book. So can you tell us a little bit about the song that we're going to hear, which is not a Masika song, but actually Luisa Tuncia's Matish Flus. Yeah, thanks. So uh, Luisa Tuncia is born just a couple years uh, after uh, Habiba Masika, uh, 1905, also a Tunisian Jew and uh uh, uh, a Tunisian uh, diva of, of the 1920s, 1930s, and, and post-World uh, War II uh, as well. Uh, much of her music is quite uh, ribald. It it's, um, uh, scandalizes uh, to, to a lesser or a, a greater degree. Um, but she's someone who uh, rivals Habiba Masika in, in many ways. She'll also serve as Columbia Records uh, cover artist or cover girl uh, for their uh, uh, 1930s catalogs uh, in Tunisia. And so one of her songs, which I just happen to personally love, but sort of gets us to this sense of sort of um, new ways of, of understanding the world, uh, a music that, of course, is Arabic language, but sounds quite different from the Andalusian tradition, uh, for example, uh, we, we're also going to hear her uh, singing uh, the lead with um, uh, a male chorus behind her. So also sort of uh, a, a woman in front and, and men uh, behind. Uh, this is a, a record that she released uh, with the Polyphone uh, label, uh, a song called Mafish uh, Flus, If There's No Money. Uh, and the idea being here, I mean, the lyrics uh, for, for those who, uh, you know, uh, speak uh, Arabic will, will be uh, quite clear in, in um, 
ذا كورس ما فيش فلوس ما فيش كرام روح يا حبيبي في سلام so you know if there's no money then we don't have any words get out of her love goodbye and what she's talking about here is uh, one that uh, if she gets married and the question is if um, then um, she's going to be the one to uh, negotiate uh, the price of the marriage and she's going to be the one who's going to dictate the terms and what she's saying here and this isn't going to sort of sound like whatever um whatever wave of, of feminism we're up to at this point, it's not going to sound like cutting edge feminism. Uh, but what she's saying is sort of uh, money talks, uh, the old rules of the game no longer uh, uh, apply. And if you want me, then you better be uh, well to do. So I'll leave it there, but we can take a listen to it uh, together now. Perfect. Let's take a listen. So that's just a snippet of the full song. And for our listeners today to the interview, um, the full songs will be posted on the blog page for this interview for those of you who are interested in hearing not just clips of the audio, but the full songs that we're going to be talking about today. And I do also want to add that uh, the lyrics, if there's no money, there's no words, kind of reminds me a little bit of a uh, interwar North African version of Aretha Franklin respect. <laughs> like, it touches on similar themes, um, similar ideas. Um, yeah. But, yeah. Might be, I think that might be right. And, you know, uh, also, of course, that, you know, that sort of the inversion of, of uh, male, female in, in respect, where it's, you know, it's originally an Otis Redding song, and then uh, Aretha turns it around. Uh, yeah, you might be right. You might be really yeah. accurate. <laughs> and then there's another point, um, while we're still on the topic of women artists in the interwar period, and even after the interwar period, actually, that really stuck out to me when I was reading the book which was just how essential it seemed to these artists that women were going to strive for their financial autonomy. Um, And so I brought a couple of examples of this that you go over. So it's in 1924, Habiba Messica, uh, the quote that you use is, began demanding the then unheard of sum of 500 francs per roll um, while she was working in the Tunisian theater. And then later on in the book, there's a similar example about Zohra Alfasia, who we'll talk about later, um, who asked for an advance of 25,000 to to 50,000 Moroccan francs in a total contract worth four times that amount um, in order to sign with Samuel Maghrebi's Samiphone label in 1960. So this is, again, kind of an interesting connection to class and modernity. Um, This is just a point that I wanted to touch on and something that I found particularly interesting. Absolutely. Uh You know, I should say, like, you know, um, 
there's there's really great scholarship out there on uh, figures like uh, Um Kalsum I mentioned. Um, Hanan Hamad has a has a great new book on uh, Leila Murad, and so we certainly have we've known of this in 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 uh, a number of of cases in the Egyptian context. And part of what I want to do is also sort of you know expand the canon here and and make clear that um, there were those in Morocco, Algeria, and Tunisia um, doing very much the same uh, thing and, and doing so over uh, time. So as you mentioned, Habiba Masika, uh, who's also uh, very much in in control of uh, of her recording life as well, not just demanding sums uh, for theatrical performances, um, but uh, negotiating so that she can record with multiple labels at the same time, which wasn't always uh, possible, and also negotiating royalties, which was more or less unheard of uh, at the time, and certainly for a female artist. So, you know, all of this is, is, is certainly part of the story, as, as you just highlighted. For my next question, I want to stay in the interwar period, but take us to a new topic, um, one of the biggest topics for historians who work on the interwar period, which is nationalism. Mm. So unsurprisingly, the history of music that you cover here is connected to the history of nationalism, or I guess nationalisms in North Africa. So what are some of just the major ways in which music and nationalism are intertwined? Yes. um, So, you know, there's one there's there's a few ways to, to think about this. I mean, one is that like we, in some ways we always told the story of, of the sonic aspects of uh, nationalism. And this is especially the case uh, in, in Morocco. Um, so, so one of the sort of uh, the pivotal moments in uh, uh, nation, nationalist history uh, in Morocco is uh, a moment in 1930 uh, were, uh, and I'm going to do a bunch of shorthand uh, here, but in 1930, uh, the French government attempts uh, to uh, do, uh, attempts a further move of, of dividing and conquering, uh, where they attempt to pry uh, Berbers uh, away from Islamic law. Uh, so there's going to be uh, a legal uh, regime that now separates uh, the majority or near majority uh, Berber population, of course, is also Muslim uh, from uh, their Arab counterparts. Uh, This is something that becomes known in the historiography as the Berber Dahir, uh, the Berber uh, Decree. And uh, what this uh, uh, does is, as so often these things do, is is to very much uh, unify uh, Moroccans who begin saying, you know, we're not going to be divided. Uh, Don't attempt to artificially separate us. This is a violation of Islamic law, etc., uh, and uh, the the sort of the, the consensus, I mean, what you read in every sort of uh, account of, of this moment in Moroccan history is um, the, the unification uh, that results from this uh, Berber Dahir uh, is, is manifested through this act of a uh, communal prayer that is uh, chanted um, uh, loudly and publicly, uh, and that's amended to address uh, this moment. So this is a prayer uh, known as the Latif, uh, and uh, begins to take on uh, the cadence of uh, nationalism. So previously, it was sort of a communal prayer that would be invoked at, at moments of sort of a natural disaster or drought or famine and things like that. And now it's invoked in uh, the sense of uh, God 
uh, keep us together. Arabs and Berbers, uh, we're we're of, uh, we're cut from the same uh, cloth. We're of uh, we're of the same we're of the same people. And so there's already sort of embedded into treatment of Moroccan nationalism this uh, this sort of this sonic uh, component, where uh, week in and week out, uh, Moroccans are taken to the streets uh, with uh, a chant, which forces uh, the French protectorate authorities uh, to back down to recalculate, and at the same time emboldens uh, nationalist figures like Ali Al Fasi, uh, Mohammed Al Yazidi, etc. There's other ways we can see that, like uh, music, is already in this story. Uh, Mohammed Al Yazidi, for example, uh, one of the, the great nationalist leaders of. Uh, uh, of the interwar period in Morocco uh, has a background in theater as well. So sort of the theatrics around uh, the, the, the protests after the Berber Dahir uh, become sort of start to make that much more sense. Uh, even just looking more carefully at some of the, the secondary uh, literature, uh, we find that at many uh, clandestine meetings of uh, nationalist uh, cells in, in northern Morocco, um, those, those gatherings started uh, with a musical concert. Uh, those, their music was baked into that uh, story. Um, the music as well, the recorded music of uh, Habiba Masika, uh, Lili Labasi, an Algerian Jewish artist, as well as uh, Salim Halali, another Algerian uh, Jewish artist, uh, begins to make considerable waves in, uh, depending on who we're talking about, uh, but around uh, the, the early uh, 1930s through the end of the decade, through just before uh, the Second World War. Um, some of the output of these uh, Jewish artists is either uh, explicitly uh, nationalist or understood to be so, uh, both by Jews and Muslims and by uh, French colonial uh, authorities. And what happens is that uh, the uh, colonial authorities again uh, attempt to um, to seize copies of these records uh, in order to uh, prevent uh, uh, sort of a, a nationalism from being uh, expressed uh, through sound uh, uh, that's played in uh, cafes and, and other uh, communal uh, communal settings. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, all of a sudden where we would have in the past, you know, just focused on, on figures like uh, Ali Al-Fasi, for example, uh, we find that uh, both uh, Moroccan audiences and uh, the French uh, colonial authorities become quite suspect uh, of uh, a Lili Labasi record uh, in the late 1930s that they think is making reference to uh, the exile, the forced exile of uh, Al Fasi uh, by uh, French colonial uh, authorities. Uh, and, you know, all of a the sudden, uh, these authorities recognize that they have a serious problem uh, in their midst that sort of, you know, it's one thing to exile individuals, but when sort of the sounds singing their praises are everywhere and emanating not just from Moroccan uh, Muslims, but also from Jews and Jews beyond uh, Morocco's borders, that they have a serious uh, problem on uh, on their hands. 
Habiba Masika's uh, music as well, whether she's singing uh, in praise of uh, the Bay of Tunisia, uh, uh, the uh, Egyptian uh, king, uh, the, the great Syrian revolt of the 1920s. You know, all of this is part of the story of sort of, you know, how uh, the nation becomes uh, imagined uh, at this time, what nationalism uh, sounds like, what uh, anti-colonialism uh, sounds like as well. And again, this is something that's um, uh, uh, attested to uh, by, uh, you know, all of our uh, historical actors, whether they uh, fear the music or, or whether they embrace it. Right. And then the second example of music that I'm going to be able to play uh, for the listening audience is one of these Habiba Masika songs. So in just a second, I'm going to play a clip from Antisuria Biladi. So we'll hear it and then I'll have you tell us a little bit more about this song in particular. So here is the song again, Habiba Masika, Antisuria Biladi. And again, for the listeners, for those of you who want to hear the full versions of all these songs, they will be available online on the webpage for this interview. But can you tell us a little bit more about this song in particular and what its significance is? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a, a song that we can translate uh, to uh, your Syria, my country, um, the invocation of Syria. And this is this is a record that's released in 1928. Uh, so this is, you know, mere months after uh, the 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 final putting down of the great uh, Syrian revolt. And this is, of course, a revolt against uh, French colonialism, uh, the French uh, regime there, you know, is uh, is of consequence. Um, it speaks to uh, certainly a, a certain uh, pan-Arabism. Uh, and of course, listeners at the time understood Syria as, as standing in for uh, Tunisia or uh, Algeria or uh, Morocco as well. Um, she speaks of... Uh, 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 pride here, uh, an Arab pride uh, in, in national terms. And she also projects the defeat of, uh, of foreign enemies. Uh, I do. Uh, she, she, uh, she does this uh, in the song. And, and, and of course, uh, there, there's much else there, but that's, that's the general uh, context. So, you know, this is no innocent uh, act. Uh, there's a, a deliberateness uh, here. And then uh, with records of this nature that are released by uh, Masika, you know, even if one could sort of dismiss them and say, well, she's just singing this song and uh, perhaps it, you know, it's um, I, she doesn't mean what she's saying. I, I, you know, I'm not even sure what one could, could do there, but at the end of these recordings uh, in most cases, what you hear is a back and forth between uh, Misika and her instrumentalist. Will they say something like, 
long live Syria, long live the Syrian people, uh, or uh, long live Egypt, long live the Egyptian uh, king. Sort of, uh, it's it's very hard to imagine that this is anything but uh, uh, deliberate, and and that's what we hear. Uh, here. Uh, this record uh, drew the ire of, uh, again, uh, the French authorities. It, it drew the, the adulation of uh, um, uh, North African uh, Muslims and Jews and also traveled well beyond that as well. So this copy that we just listened to or this uh, version that we just uh, listened to comes from a record in my uh, collection that once belonged to uh, someone in uh, Detroit, Michigan, uh, someone uh, uh, born in uh, Ottoman Syria, uh, who for whom uh, Habiba Masika, a Tunisian Jew, a Tunisian Jewish woman, uh, for whom uh, she resonated for him as well. Right. And then for those listeners who are interested in materiality, I noticed on the webpage you sent me for the recording, it includes a picture of the record itself. And there's a sticker um, on the record of a shop or an, someone indicating an ownership of someone who lives in Michigan. And I noticed that as kind of just a layered um, textual evidence that there's the original pressing on the shellac record of where the record was pr- printed in North Africa, but then later another sticker slapped on it that kind of is a physical marker of the migration of this music. Um, exactly. of, uh, exactly. the global scope. Yeah. One essentially wrote their name in pencil in the front cover of a book, right? I mean, so the, 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 the idea here was, you know, you put your name and address on a record, you know, lest it be lost. Um, and so there's something very powerful about that as well. And it speaks to exactly the point uh, of, of materiality that you just mentioned. Yeah. It also speaks to how precious um, this music is as memories, as something that is really important to people. If you're writing a sticker that you're putting on a record with your address and your phone number so that people can contact you should you lose it. You're very clearly broadcasting that this is something that is meaningful to you, that this is an important item that you want to carry with you wherever you're going. Exactly, exactly. And then in chapter four, now we're moving out of the interwar period and into World War II. And obviously this is a huge, huge topic that we could do an entire interview about just World War II. But um, kind of the major hits, which is how did the war affect North African Jewish musicians, uh, both for musicians who are living in North Africa itself and for those who were abroad in France um, in the colonial metropole? Yeah, I mean, in short, the, the Second World War has, has a decided impact on uh, the demographics of uh, the music industry, recording industry in uh, in North Africa, uh, and as well, of course, uh, in, in, in metropolitan uh, France. Um, you know, with the fall of the, the Third Republic, uh, the rise of uh, Pétain and, and, and the Vichy uh, regime, the French uh, state, um, the purview of, of Vichy in, you know, so-called unoccupied uh, southern half of France is, is extended uh, to uh, North Africa uh, as well. Um, uh, Jewish racial laws will be uh, applied there quite uh, quickly, um, you know, in parallel to those that are uh, applied in, in metropolitan France. Um, the commune decree is is abrogated uh, as well, uh, just uh, a, f- a few short days uh, uh, later. And this means that, you know, this means many, many things for uh, uh, North African Jews and Muslims or Algerian Jews uh, and, and Muslims. Uh, but it also means uh, that uh, Jewish voices that once could be heard 
almost everywhere um, in the interwar period uh, go silent uh, during uh, the years of, of, of Vichy uh, rule. Um, so this means that uh, in Mutravia, uh, the uh, almost entirely Jewish orchestra um, that's headed by Mahidin Bashtarzi is uh, disbanded in 1940 uh, in the wake of uh, the application of uh, the Jewish uh, racial laws. Um, you know, it means that Jews are removed from performance in uh, municipal theaters, uh, ability to perform on, on radio uh, as well. And so many of them will go uh, underground uh, at, this, at this time. We can hear this play out in, in other ways and other circumstances. So one of the um, something that I speak about in, in, in chapter four is also the emergence of the first uh, Jewish radio pro- program in uh, North Africa uh, uh, on Radio Tunis, uh, something that's known as uh, as the Hebrew Hour, uh, where you can hear figures like uh, Asher Mizrahi, who I mentioned earlier, uh, this Palestine-born uh, Hazan cantor uh, who uh, who uh, pens an iconic uh, song about Habiba Masika in the wake of her uh, death. So he was one sort of a, a staple of the Tunisian airwaves, but by the Second World War, you can you can no longer uh, hear him. And so there are various iterations of, of that happening in North Africa, and we're, and we're going sort of quickly through this. Uh, and of course, in metropolitan France, uh, the situation uh, is that much uh, graver. Uh, so sort of most uh, infamously, we have uh, the case of uh, Salim Halali, who I mentioned earlier, uh, an Algerian Jewish artist born in, in, 19, in 1920 uh, in, uh, in eastern Algeria, not far from the Tunisian border, who eventually makes his way to, to Paris in, in the 1930s. He'll launch a career there, uh, in, a recording career there in 1939. His star is really rising. And then by 1940, he finds himself um, not just in, uh, in, uh, in, in Paris, but a Paris under uh, Nazi German occupation. Um, he is uh, directly affected by the horrors of uh, the Second World War, as well as the Holocaust. Um, his sister is uh, sent to the death camps. Um, he has uh, Jewish colleagues who are sent, uh, musical colleagues, collaborators uh, that are sent there uh, uh, as well, sent to, sent to Auschwitz, uh, for example. Uh, and he is uh, forced to go into, into hiding. Uh, uh, and again, sort of I- I- iconically, and this has been portrayed uh, in the film uh, Free Men or Les Hommes Libres, uh, in the um, in the Grand Mosque of Paris, in in the in the fifth, um, an institution that many people I'm sure have uh, have visited. So um, he survives the war. He is a Holocaust uh, survivor, um, and of course deeply touched by it uh, as well. And so you know there are there are worlds that sort of come musical worlds that that come apart at this moment uh in time with every um death of uh, uh or murder of a musician for example saul lorane is an, is another uh, uh such case of a really significant important uh recording artist and much more uh from uh, from algeria who ends up in in Marseille and in France, uh, and 
uh, will also suffer the fate of uh, of many during uh, the Holocaust and and, and uh, uh, will be sent to the death camps. And so with him disappears um, uh, a world of, of musical knowledge that, you know, in many ways was still passed down master to disciple, but uh, with their uh, silencing, um, much of that disappears. There's another idea in your discussion of World War II um, that I found to be particularly fascinating, and it's this fraught and often contentious historiography on this relationship or sometimes assumed affinity between Muslim nationalists in the Middle East and North Africa during the war, during the war and fascism and the fascist Axis powers. And so you touch on this idea with a lot of tact and um, with a lot of swiftness um, through the story of Mahadeen Bashtarzi, who was, as you just mentioned, an Algerian Muslim who was the director of the famed El Motriba Orchestra. Um, and I have two questions here. So the first of which is so that we can kind of understand what's happening is, can you sketch the arc of what he did during the war? And then after that, can you tell us about how you use this story to address with successful nuance um, the tendency to overemphasize uh, this assumed link between Muslim Middle Eastern North African nationalists and fascism? Yeah, he's, I mean, Mahidin Bashtarzi is, um, is, a, is a figure who, who is worthy of, of much more um, uh, study, you know, in, in, in broad strokes, he, um, he comes from a, a religious world. He's, uh, he's uh, you know, someone who's in charge of uh, Quranic uh, recitation uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, not far from Edmund Netanyahu's office. And Yafil uh, hears him and says, uh, "Why don't we? Why don't we uh, take your voice and, and apply it for uh, to, to different uh, means?" And and brings him into the recording industry, brings him into a largely uh, Jewish uh, milieu, uh, and and Yafil serves as as master uh, in this master disciple uh, relationship. And Bashtarzi will really take up his his mantle uh, in uh, in the nineteen twenties and, and takes over many of his responsibilities uh, with Yafil's death in, in 1927. Bashtarzi throughout this period um, recognizes sort of um, what what is owed to this coming together of, of Jews and, and Muslims through music. That sort of this, um, even if we want to call it competition, uh, the fact that um, uh, Jews and, and Muslims are, are engaging in the same Repertoire, Bashtarzi understands this as, as ultimately contributing to the betterment of, of this music, that this competition uh, sort of uh, uh, breeds uh, uh, improvement and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and takes music to, to heights it, it would have never reached uh, previously. Um, in the mid-1930s, he, uh, he is also taken by uh, Leon Blum, uh, the you know, first socialist Jewish uh, prime minister uh, of France, sings in, in his honor, recognizes uh, that he is doing uh, much more than anyone else had previously uh, for uh, the uh, Algerian cause, thinks of him as a friend and, and, uh, and a supporter, uh, uh, tells him in song, 
whose which the lyrics of which are, are printed and available uh, for purchase, uh, he says, you know, it's thanks to you that I've been uh, given a voice, and you know, he needs as as an Algerian. Um, things change in, in 1940 um, again with the rise of, of Vichy. Uh, very quickly, Bashtarzi offers his services uh, to Vichy. Uh, he uh, composes uh, pro Vichy uh, song that um, quite quickly, in certain cases, uh, dips into overt anti-Semitism, um, and uh, you know the. <laughs> I, I, the, the entire tenor uh, changes uh, quickly. And, and Bashtarzi is, you know, a, a very high profile bard of, of Vichy who is taking uh, these songs in praise of Pétain uh, or songs in praise of uh, a, an Arab-French relationship that, that no longer includes uh, Jews, for example. Uh, I mean, he's performing at, you know, um, at uh, concerts at just like a, an incredibly rapid uh, clip, you know, dozens uh, of concerts uh, over the course of, of a year, almost, you know, one or two a week at certain points uh, and to rather significant audiences as well, where he, you know, audiences in the thousands where he's, he's, he's singing, uh, again, in praise of this uh, authoritarian accommodationist uh, and anti-Semitic regime, and then sometimes he'll veer from the script uh, and uh, and uh, and spew anti-Semitism, uh, sort of European-style anti-Semitism. Um, you know, and it's I think it's it's a difficult moment to approach um, in terms of sort of coming to understand what Bashtarazi uh, is doing or how to understand it, right? I mean, you know, it's it's clearly, he, it's it's a betrayal of, of his erstwhile uh, Jewish uh, uh, colleagues. Um, you know, a one approach might be to consider that he's merely sort of singing for his supper. Um, that um, this is something that musicians sometimes do, although we might contrast that with the actions of, of other Muslim artists at the time who are uh, speaking out, singing out uh, uh, against uh, against uh, Vichy, uh, uh, upholding the, the Jewish-Muslim relationship. Uh, and, and then what's also sort of... Um, uh, intriguing that, that makes it sort of like not a straightforward story uh, is that it's it's not linear in the way we might expect it. So in other words, of course, uh, the Vichy regime comes to an end, which Bashtarzi wouldn't have known uh, that that was going to happen at the time. Um, and uh, immediately at, at war's end, he um, reprises uh, relationships with uh, with Jewish artists. Uh, Bashtarazi does, uh, and will maintain those relationships, you know, well into the twentieth uh, century. Um, he will promote uh, Jewish artists in the post-war period. He speaks. <coughs> excuse me. He speaks uh, incredibly highly of Salim Halali, who he says uh, is the greater, greatest Arab male voice of the post-war uh, uh, period. He crossed uh, paths with figures like uh, Maurice Medioni, the nephew of Saud Medioni, who I mentioned uh, uh, earlier. And so he's still, in, in many ways, you know, uh, you know, it connected uh, to North African Jews uh, in the, the mid to late uh, 1940s. 
1940s and, and will maintain correspondence uh, with uh, Algerian Jewish musicians who, who relocate to France uh, right around 1962 uh, until his death. Um, and so, uh, you know, I would say not a straightforward story uh, at all. It certainly speaks to what you mentioned uh, earlier about sort of, you know, thinking differently about uh, the relationship between um, Jews and Muslims in North Africa in the course of the war, uh, moving away from some of the of the binaries that, that you mentioned and toward uh, just a, a deeper understanding of exactly what the dynamics were at the time. Right. His story very very much does embody kind of just the sheer level of complexity of motivations that are happening here and also change over time and people who are changing their opinions and maybe acting one day to advance their careers and then acting the other in a very kind of emotional and personal um, obligation sense. And what I think that does for the historiography, for the historiography on Middle Eastern North African nationalism and fascism is to really say it's not a yes only situation, but a yes and situation, right? So it's not that there's some sort of primordial causal affinity um, that is this link to authoritarianism or to anti-Semitism, but that people do things for a variety of reasons in a variety of contexts. And I think the story that you tell here in this book makes that point very clearly and uh, does a lot to dispel kind of an old historiographical assumption about some sort of innate affinity between those two groups. But uh, moving on to after World War II, there was a long decade plus of decolonization and independence movements throughout the world and in North Africa. And as with interwar nationalism, music and North African Jewish musicians are a part of this history too. And perhaps nowhere is this connection more salient than in the figure of Moroccan superstar Samuel Maghrebi. So can you tell us a little bit more about him and what he embodies about the politics of independence in post-war North Africa? Sure. Yeah, Samuel Maghrebi uh, is born uh, Solomon Amzalag in uh, uh, Safi on the Atlantic coast of Morocco in, in the 1920s. Um, he um, he comes of age, in fact, uh, during uh, the Second World uh, War, um, Vichy will come to have an impact on, on his life and, and his uh, family. Uh, he has sort of a, a trip, you know, I don't know, a more uh, mainstream uh, path in the 1940s where he serves as an, an accountant uh, for uh, a, a large firm uh, and then finds that his, his passion is, is music and, and he, he's, he's gifted with a certain uh, talent. Uh, in 1948, April 1948, uh, he enters a... Pate recording studio in in Paris uh, records his first sides and in, in sort of you know in the most cliche of ways the rest is, is history. So his star uh, really rises uh, during a period which we usually think of as um, the end or the beginning of the end for uh, the Moroccan Jewish community. So this is between uh, 1948. Uh, he records uh, for Pate anchoring their uh, Arab catalog the month before uh, Israel's establishment in the concomitant uh, Nakba uh, and uh, carries through Moroccan independence in, in, in 1956. Uh, his voice is everywhere uh, during this period, not just recording uh, popular music of, uh, of all sorts, but um, uh, he's uh, performing live on uh, the radio as well. He'll 
establish his own uh, record company, uh, a record label uh, called Semiphone. Uh, he'll become the spokesperson for brands like uh, Coca-Cola, Canada Dry, Gillette, um, uh, Chewing Gum, uh, and he'll give voice uh, to those brands in the form of the sort of the, the iconic quintessential mid 20th century radio jingle. Uh, and he'll also take up the cause of uh, Sultan Mohammed ben Yusuf, uh, Moroccan uh, nationalism uh, and, uh, and patriotism. And he'll, he'll do this in, uh, in a number of ways. I mean, one is, again, sartorially. Um, he uh, orders uh, red and green outfits, the Moroccan colors, uh, for the members of his ensemble, which are called the Sammy's Boys. Um, so it's like very much modeled on sort of uh, American big band. Um, and his form of nationalism, uh, patriotism, will grow uh, increasingly uh, strident uh, through his uh, music. So um, he, uh, he finds himself... Uh, as someone taken by the Sultan and his cause, and he'll uh, release a number of records uh, from the moment that, uh, certainly from the moment that the Sultan is uh, exiled by the French in, in 1953, uh, well through Moroccan independence and beyond, uh, in which he sings the praises of the Sultan, he sings the praises of the Moroccan uh, people in the most uh, capacious of, of, of terms. Uh, he refers to Moroccans, whether they're from from the north or the south, uh, from the ports or the hinterland, uh, he he speaks of them as, as soldiers of of this cause, and this cause is uh, God, uh, uh, country, and and Sultan. Um, and so he, you know, in my reading of, of Samuel Maghrebi, he really provides the soundtrack to this uh, march to independence. And I should say, again, um, a transna- transnationalism is uh, at play here because Maghrebi is not just popular uh, in France, uh, sorry, in Morocco and in metropolitan France, uh, but also across the border in Algeria and, and in handwritten letters back and forth between uh, and Maghrebi and, and his brother, uh, who had relocated to uh, to Marseille, um, uh, his brother warns him that. Uh, uh, his records are quite popular in Algeria, and of course the French authorities are not going to look kindly on this. So just to be uh, to be careful, um, and so he's someone who, who again carries us forward into the post-war period. And as you as you read in the book, he's not the only one. I mean, we could point to any number of figures in Morocco, but also uh, Algeria and Tunisia as well. Right. And the last of the audio clips that we're going to hear today is actually a snippet of his music. So I'm going to play it now and then I'll have you tell us a little bit about the song that we've just heard and what it reflects about this history. So here we'll have a listen to the song. وسلطاني لا مقصود كل عسكري مغربي ومقصود كل عسكري مغربي الله وطاني وسلطاني أبأمرك يا ربنا الرحمن أبأمرك يا ربنا الرحمن 
Yeah, what was the song that we just heard and what does it reflect um, about this time period and the history of post-war independence movements? Yeah, I mean, so this is, uh, you know, the context we just heard a, a moment ago. This is the Moroccan march uh, uh, to independence. And, and this is a song that uh, comes at the very moment of uh, Moroccan independence in, in 1956, both from uh, independence from France as well as Spain, the reunification of these two uh, two Moroccos. Uh, and the song is released on his own label, Semiphone, uh, and uh, it's composed by uh, El Maghrebi. You can hear it's got a very uh, militaristic uh, sound to it. It's, it's a march, uh, and the song is entitled Allah Watani wa Sultani, uh, God, my, my Sultan, uh, and my country. And again, it, it picks up on the themes that we just elucidated a moment uh, ago in which he's singing uh, in praise of the Sultan who's brought tranquility to the country. Uh, he's singing in praise of the Moroccan people who we described as soldiers uh, in the cause uh, of uh, of the sultan. Uh, so again, any way you think about uh, uh, this piece of music, and this is a piece of music that in fact is played um, uh, very often on Moroccan uh, radio in the early days of, uh, of uh, Moroccan uh, independence. It's one of the songs that Zohar al-Fasiya thinks about covering, again, as we mentioned earlier, for, for really sort of astronomical uh, rate. Uh, it's a song that we know from the personal letters of, of Samir Maghrebi is, um, is performed by uh, the Moroccan armed, uh, Royal Armed Forces uh, at this time, or the, the, the military uh, orchestra. And so, again, in the independence period, or at least in the early independence period, uh, El Maghrebi and his brand of nationalism can be heard everywhere. Yeah, and then uh, I'm going to take us to the last chapter, and we're going to start to close things out here. But El Maghrebi is also part of what you were mentioning earlier with his relationship with his brother, this 60s period, 1960s period of kind of what we assume is the decline um, of North African Jewish populations. So North African states achieved independence throughout the 50s and 60s, Morocco in 1956, Tunisia in 1957, and Algeria in 1962. And the conventional story of Jewish life in North Africa after these independences is lacrimose or dictated by this tragic narrative of an unstoppable decline. But you challenged this narrative without omitting the history of Jewish outmigration from the Middle East and North Africa. So what happened in the world of North African Jewish music and musicians in this post-independence period? And how is this history perhaps not neatly as one way or another as some of the prior historical narratives might suggest? Yeah, so, uh, you know, all of this sort of depends on, on of course, how we, how we slice it. Um, so, you know, for example, um, you know, until... 1960, uh, about two thirds of Moroccan Jews uh, remain in place, right? So this is 12 years after 1948, uh, four years uh, after uh, uh, independence. Um, you know, we can speak of a, a significant community in, in Tunisia uh, at the time, and of course, you know, the near entirety of the Algerian Jewish community uh, up until that that moment of uh, right before and then during and right after Algerian independence in, in 1962. Um, with this chapter, um, you know, one of the things that I, I 
I wanted to think about um, with the reader is sort of um, this this moment of, of great change. Of course, many people are uh, uh, are departing. Uh, and so one of the ways I, I, I think about that is through the lens of uh, Samuel Mogrebi's uh, record store, Samifon, the brick and mortar uh, record store, which while Samuel Maghrebi leaves Morocco in 1959, uh, his record store will remain there until 1965, and he'll continue to operate it uh, from afar. And so, you know, one um, one element that I found quite uh, compelling and intriguing was this idea of sort of, uh, you know, thinking along the lines of, of Omar Boom's um, uh, memories of absence, uh, extending that sort of to the to the realm of of the oral, and also these memories of, of presence as well. So, in other words, you know, in the 1960s, uh, you could still find uh, semiphone in a sort of a Tony and, and centrally located uh, location uh, in Morocco. So he sort of, you know, the, the idea of Samuel Mogherbi is still very much uh, there. You could still hear his voice, of course, on his old recordings, but new recordings that he would make uh, in France that would then be uh, sent uh, to Morocco during this period. So, for example, um, there's a, a catastrophic uh, earthquake in uh, the, the coastal city of Agadir in, uh, in 1960, and El Maghrebi is, um, you know, devastated by the event uh, and, and pens uh, a song, Qisat Agadir, uh, to, um, to commemorate the victims and to sort of uh, to comfort them as well. And that song can uh, be heard everywhere in Morocco in the aftermath of this, uh, of, of the earthquake, earthquake uh, that just flattens uh, the city of, of Agadir. So, you know, his record store is there, his his music and his voice are, are, are moving around. Uh, Salim Halali uh, also sort of allows us to challenge um, sort of just a more straightforward uh, lacrimose uh, uh, understanding of this period and also the way in which migration uh, works because uh, he will, uh, uh, you know, he's Algerian, of course, uh, uh, and he uh, spends the war years in France and then he'll eventually settle in Casablanca uh, performing alongside Samuel Maghrebi on, uh, on occasion and he'll operate a cabaret there, a uh, really well-known cabaret there that will launch the careers of, uh, of many Muslim artists like Hajah and, and, and others uh, in the 1960s. And so, you know, for those sort of uh, in Casablanca or Morocco in this period, you know, I, I, once witnessing uh, Jewish departure, but at the same time being able to sort of see some of the most iconic, uh, visible, audible Jews remaining or sort of remnants of them remaining, uh, the record store, the cabaret, uh, the voices uh, everywhere. Zor al-Fasiya is, is another uh, figure who's uh, there through the early 1960s as well. Um, you know, it, I think it, it gives us pause in terms of thinking of just sort of um, uh, a more straightforward story of departure and one in which we might be able to trace um, sort of um, uh, 
the 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 lingering sounds of uh, of uh, of Moroccan Jews uh, and the Moroccan Jewish community. Um, there's also uh, I, I think I touch on this a, a bit as well, but there's also uh, a, a Moroccan Jewish uh, radio program that begins to air during this period in 1950 and 1965, uh, where you can hear um, sort of more profane uh, voices, uh, but also voices like that of uh, Rabbi David Buzaglo, uh, one of the, the pillars of uh, 20th century uh, Moroccan Jewish life. So, you know, it's just, it's, it's a shift, a sort of a sensorial shift that begins to sort of push our timeline uh, back a bit, and also really to give us a sense of uh, some of the confusion of the moment and some of uh, what could still be heard until much later in the 20th century than we might have uh, originally thought. Yeah, this uh, sensorial shift brings me to what I think is going to be my last question for this interview, which is you conclude the book with a heartfelt appeal to really listen to the soundscape. So why is it important to listen to the soundscape? And what do we learn when we approach history from this perspective that we might otherwise miss? So, you know, I think... I think there's no separating of, of any of these things. There's no separating of, of music and, and history or uh, music and, and, and politics. And that, that's something that I um, both think and believe. And, and when turning uh, to uh, historical actors, uh, it's sort of uh, affirmed and, and reaffirmed uh, as well. Um, this mu- the music that I speak about in this book meant a great deal um, to um, to Jews and Muslims in, in North Africa uh, for much of the 20th century. And of course, we could say into the present as well, whether it's the music itself or the memory uh, of that music. Um, it was music that that motivated people, uh, motivated people to to reimagine themselves or to reimagine uh, communities. Uh, it was music that people um, consumed and, and paid for, spent uh, their their hard uh, earned uh, money to uh, to procure, to, to to listen to, to see uh, to see live uh, in in concert. And here's sort of you know a difference between uh, politicians who often have to drag people out or have to pay people to come out and people who uh, uh, will spend money, uh, their own hard-earned money to, uh, to, uh, to, pursue, uh, to pursue music. Uh, it came, listening to this music came often at a great uh, personal cost to them, especially when considering the fact of uh, just how um, violent uh, the French colonial, uh, these regimes uh, were, uh, that they went after uh, musicians and their audiences. And we see that people uh, took great risks uh, to listen, to pass along uh, records, uh, to, to sing along to them, to hum along to them. Uh, and so, you know, there, there's there's that on the one hand, and we can also think of the numbers, you know, like uh, we've been, we've been uh, spotlighting in many ways uh, the stories of individual musicians, but, you know, to think about these, these audiences which you know in some cases are appearing for or coming out uh, for a single concert in the thousands 
And, you know, this is not a minor uh, phenomenon. Suddenly it gives us a real sense of, of culture, of, of mass culture, of, uh, of, of mass uh, uh, publics. And so, you know, all of that uh, together, and of course we can point to uh, French concern and, and uh, that sort of, those sort of power dynamics as well. But all of this to say, you know, it, it can no longer be ignored. Uh, it meant something uh, really uh, important uh, to uh, those in Morocco, Algeria, and, and, and Tunisia. Its remnants uh, uh, are here to this uh, to this day. Uh, the music. Um, that uh, once uh, spawned on 78 RPM records uh, is uh, is now sort of again worked into into memory uh, or diffused on uh, on the internet or, or repurposed and um, reinterpreted, and so you know I think really sort of you know it's it's on us the historians for having not paid attention to it enough, and I think uh, now it's finally time to do so. I agree. And I think all those points are passionately and well-made uh, in your book. And so with that, I want to say thank you so much for joining us today for this interview. Thanks, Avery. It was a pleasure.